1: Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Keon Sabani. It is Sunday, February 4th. We finished the weekend roundup of La Liga matches and we're about to dive in to dissect Real Madrid's disastrous draw yesterday uh, in Valencia against Levante. Joining me to help break this down is Om Arvin with his new mic. Om Arvin, how are you doing, my friend?
2: I'm delighted to be here, hyped up to have my new mic I hope everyone can hear me better now. Um, but I'm not hyped up about Real Madrid's recent results. And the draw against Levante was a particularly bitter pill to swallow because I thought possibly we might be on the way up again. Um, but yeah, it looks like we're just continuing down the same path and it's really difficult to watch at the moment. We were,
1: it really felt like we were on the way up. Like, are we deluded in thinking that? We had two. Straight away wins, or sorry, two straight wins in La Liga. We scored 11 goals in the process, conceded uh, two. And, you know, albeit we we were very cautious in, in, in analyzing those games because our expected goal ratio was like a combined three, you know, in, in those two games, plus two penalties. But we saw good signs, right? We saw good signs and uh, Valencia Atleti have both been dropping points lately. Especially Valencia, and we're like, okay, you know what? Second place is pretty attainable. And then this happens. Uh, like, I don't know. Even like even the first half, like before uh, Boateng scored to to equalize in the first half, I thought I thought there were things to be excited about. There was, um, you know, I thought Benzema was playing really well. Um, Modric had a great game overall. Bale made some dangerous chances, but I think like some of the things that shot us in the foot were. You know, both Bale or Benzema would have had at least an assist if Ronaldo could control his chances or, or, or be more lethal in front of goal. And Marcelo started off really slow, and he kind of, like, grew into the game, but he also was, again, really poor defensively, a lot of space in behind him. And then what I guess the turning point was, Om, like, Morales makes this brilliant run behind Sergio Ramos, and he just completely loses Sergio like, was in his blind side, and I think the pass, the way it was hit, it, it went down a different um, passing channel, a different line than Ramos anticipated, and it was completely behind him, and by the time Kalor made a great save, and Ramos was in a position to, to stop the shot from going in, Boateng just, just hit it, and th- there was no time to stop it, so, um, I mean, even at that point, though, I thought, yeah, there was definitely some things to be concerned about, but i i I can't believe we're just not seeing these results out like even at two one ohm we were up two one I was like, okay, great, we finally like this is the this is what we we're excited about in valencia this this whole aura of, of coming back and and closing out games finally since we haven't seen last season what we've seen in the last two games now, how hard can it be to defend a two one lead against levante is like I don't understand this should be a priority you just zip everything up i don't understand why we're so vulnerable
2: when we're leading and and it's late on i i honestly i don't know what to say right because i i could be wrong but i think someone tweeted levante hadn't scored like a home goal since november or something like that i regardless they're not a great offensive team and it's it's just embarrassing like there's there's no other word the players afterwards were at a loss Ramos said he he had he had no idea you know like why we were in the position that we are but that it it, something's gone wrong something's gone horribly wrong Casemiro did an interview afterwards and he was like similarly at a loss for words he tried to be a little more positive but I mean he basically admitted that it was embarrassing right like that this kind of thing cannot happen Mm -hmm. and it's just so disappointing because, like you said, the, it actually we didn't start the match that badly. I thought the first 30 minutes were quite good. It wasn't anything spectacular, but it was solid. We looked to be in control of the game, and then we just began to fell apart. We, and all it took really was for Levante to just step up their pressure a little bit, to, to attack a little bit more, and then we collapsed. And I, I don't know... I think there's I well we can get into it but I think there's some tactical aspects there like definitely that that were weak but there's also a mental fragility that I don't know how to explain. I guess it's just the repeated defeats and the re- I, the crushing losses we faced, some of the deflating draws we've had it's just put the team's collective mentality in a position where they can't even see out a one-goal lead for 5 minutes and and that is just if we can't do that that we have no hope of beating of beating PSG because they are going to score against us and we have to have the mental capacity to overcome that and hit back i mean there's no way we're keeping a clean sheet against that team it, it's not happening but that doesn't mean we have to lose against them but if we come in with this kind of mentality where a goal just deflates us and and we need 30 35 minutes to recover and start Playing decent football again, we're gonna get destroyed. So, it's something has to be done. I don't even know if at this point it, it really is possible to bring our mental level to what it was last season. It just might be too late. Um, but that has to be Zidane's number one priority. And then two, for me, is the tactics because. As questions we'll ask, we'll, as as we'll see, some of the questions we'll ask about our transition defense. I mean, it's been horrible basically all season and it hasn't been fixed. And the, and it has to do with our defensive structure. So either we, we have to be set up to counterpress well or everyone has to haul their ass back and we have to set up in a low block. And we're not doing either. And it's just literally all the only person I really saw doing anything on transition defense was Luka Modric the entire game. And he was exhausted by the end because he was doing 20 different things and he was stretched all over the place. And it's just not something you want one of the best playmakers in the world doing on a consistent basis. I mean, it started
1: with there was a warning sign right before Levante equalized, right? Because I, I remember this obviously all for me, it's it's a blur because I write my immediate reaction like with 20 minutes, 25 minutes to go. I start writing it. And with, like, five, ten minutes to go, you, like, pray that you have an idea of what's about to happen. So, you kind of write your your, your storyline, the theme, what's going to happen. And then there was a warning sign, like, right before, a couple minutes before Levante scored. There was a, a header at the far post. I can't remember which Levante player it was. Um, and they missed
2: it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I thought I thought we were going to win.
1: I think it was Roger Marti. And he, I mean, it's inexplicable the way he missed. Like, you see, like, Kaylor like, rushing to the far post. There's yeah. nothing he can do but hope and pray that the ball just goes wide, really, um, and that to me was like the fact that he was that wide open in a game where you're you're winning, you're 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 not losing, you're not you're not trying to throw everybody forward and 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 notch a goal. Like you know how we always said, like you look at these some of these goals that Ramja conceded in transition late on because they pushed high. The the, the famous one. Uh, that Messi scored in us last year. And then this year with Betis. Um, also against Villarreal and Celta. And all these positions were like, you know, maybe one of the ways that this gets rectified, not that it should come to this, like, because with tactics, you know, you can actually obviously prevent these very preventable things. Um, but maybe you're like, if, if Real Madrid is winning, at least, <laughs> this gets rectified naturally because you're just not throwing players up. But it still happened. Like we were up two one, and there was that warning sign, the header at the far post, and then you see the goal. It's just the, the marking is is terrible. The positioning is terrible. Um, and then before that, there was a bunch of warning signs and counters, and when and Levante just making one pass out of their own third and 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 having a counter. And you mentioned Modric, who was basically god in this game. He, I remember there was there was like he was all over the place. First of all, he was definitely the most creative offensive player um and there was that one sequence where he made this really beautiful key pass and then the next sequence he's the deepest player on the entire pitch stopping a counter-attack and good for him like he's thank you Luca for doing that for us he, it shouldn't be on his shoulders you have so many players on the team on the field at that moment that that are that should be there let let Modric conserve his energy a bit. I don't I don't know why he's spread so thin and why he's the one to do this.
2: I mean I I mean I a hundred percent agree with those sentiments, right? And I I know it's a more of a rhetorical question because you do know why um that happened. We all know why Modric had to be all over the place. It's because our midfield was all over the place. And it's because it's because for some reason this season we just have been completely unable to deal with opposition counterattacks. so it requires players to run way out of position to fill in holes that should that should be naturally filled in by some sort of prior structure that exists, right. So from what I've seen, it seems pretty clear that we want to counterpress in some kind of fashion what we we don't want to do the thing where we, maybe have one player press so that gives everyone time to retreat into a low block. I haven't seen that in any sort of consistent fashion this season. It seems to be that we want to keep everyone up high, counter press and try to win the ball back. But first 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 of all the commitment isn't nearly consistent enough for that to be a, a consistent game plan if that's what we're aiming for and I think that's what we are. It sometimes it will look really great. We'll have like three players collapse around one guy and if he somehow still gets out, Casemiro's there waiting, and and Ronaldo and Benzema and everyone, they're all working in unison, and it looks great. And then the very next play, you have a midfielder completely out of position who's maybe hanging out on the wing, and there's just this massive hole that can be exploited, and the whole team just collapse. This is this is. This is tactic, tactical fundamentals right here. You have to, you have to prepare your structure in advance if you want to counter press, right? Because counter press is an instant reaction. The second you lose the ball, the players in the vicinity move to close down the ball, the ball carrier, and the options closest to him. So he has to either, you know, play a stupid long ball, or he gives up possession. And if you do not prepare your players to be in the right positions before the ball is lost then logically you cannot counter press effectively and it it's sort of been a thing we've seen with the Zidane era where we don't always do that well but usually when it comes down to the necessary games that we need to win we see the right commitment from the team and we see the right application of tactical principles but this season it just hasn't been there we have not been adequately preparing to counter press yeah. so I, I think the solution now is if that that just isn't going to happen because it's a commitment issue or because Zidane just doesn't know how to deal with it anymore the solution would then be to have i don't what what Mourinho did in his in his seasons at madrid which was have one or two guys like the striker and the winger would press really really hard and just essentially make sure that the person on the ball couldn't couldn't pass his way out or make a really good pass up the pitch for like two or three seconds and everyone hauls their ass back and we form a n- nice, neat defensive structure in the middle of the pitch and we're set and we can't be cut apart easily in it. And that's even simpler than preparing for a counter press. And I think that's where we need to go from here because at this point I just get really, really nervous whenever we lose the ball because I I, I no longer have this confidence that we're going to press effectively. I, I think it's just we're going to allow a pass and it's two versus two against the center backs and it's a disaster. Um,
1: we're we're unintentionally answering a patron question. So I think maybe it might be a good time to actually jump into questions and start with a question yeah, that yeah. immediately actually leads into what you're talking about, Om. So um, as you all know by now, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. You can go there and pledge if you like the show, a little as a dollar a month um, and you can pledge higher than that and get different rewards and if you like the show, you want to support it, please consider um, visiting us at patreoncom Madrid. First patron question is from Mark Rady. He says, "How do we fix being hit on the counter? We all know that when teams break on the counter, we are weak. How do we fix this?" So you you mentioned this a little bit. I think one of the this you know we have brought up the idea of the counter press quite a bit, and I think that the most worrying thing for me is like you just. It's almost like a pie in the sky dream at this point because we just we haven't seen it successfully applied. And one of the ways you you know this is very famous, and there's no really need for me to keep saying this. But one of the things that Guardiola did, he took a team that wasn't good defensively, and he was like, "How do Mm -hmm. I get how do I get a good defensive line from a team that can't defend?" Well, we just mask it by holding the ball forever. And if we lose it, we have six seconds to get it back. And with City, I think he probably has even broken that six-second record. I don't know. Uh, But the counter-press is something that requires so much cohesiveness and understanding and to Mm kind of implement it on the fly, like halfway during the season. (laughs) We've shown shown good signs of pressing under Zidane. There's no question. Um, But like you said, Om, the point you brought up, Last season, I think we saw these finally rectified in the big games. And we thought it might happen again this year, but it hasn't happened against Tottenham. It didn't happen against Barca. And God knows if it'll happen against PSG. Now, I think the problem we've seen a lot, Om, is that when you're neither counter-pressing nor defending...
2: <laughs> oh, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's a, it, is,
1: it is the exact place you just don't want to be in. It's like... Mm-hmm. It's just it's like lighting yourself on fire and and throwing fuel on yourself like be, you look at you look at the goals you conceded this season, like whether it's um a set piece where we flood the box or a cross where we flood the box, and if it's cleared, no not a single player is in in this situation where they can counter press
2: and that's inexcusable,
1: yeah, it is inexcusable i, I mean and the other thing um is that um. If the counter press isn't good, or if it's not even an idea, it's not even being applied. Like it's not even the train of thought when you're defending. And but you're pushing up, kind of, just on based on individual initiative. Mm-hmm. Then your whole system falls apart.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's kind of the thing I I don't understand right because you mentioned this kind of halfway between pressing and not pressing that just results in a disaster a disaster essentially and i i've seen that so much this season i i really don't understand it it's something i mentioned in the valencia game right mm. how for the first five minutes it looked like we were pressing excellently and then we just stopped but we didn't retreat in our defensive structure we still had a structure that was meant to that you could press effectively in but we didn't press so we could Valencia entered the final third with ease and that that to me highlights the the commitment issue how i think just madrid madrid's that the head of our players just might not be in it anymore you know some of the guys might have given up on the season or it's just that mental fragility I was talking about. The repeated losses combined with some of the bad luck we've had this season has just, you know, just made the made the players feel like maybe this isn't our season. Combined, then when you look at the counter pressing, and and really just the abysmal structures combined with some tactical issues, and it just feels like everything that could be going wrong is going wrong, right? Like Murphy's Law, in in that we have bad luck, the tactics aren't right, the players aren't performing. In, in a way that could cover up some of the tactical issues like happened last season at, at times and it's just it's just something I could have never envisioned at the beginning of the season and to to be to, to concede counters repeatedly off corner kicks where you should you should definitely have a plan right like it's it's a set play you should have an idea of how to stop counters and the fact that we constantly keep giving that up just sums up where we're at right now it's one of the simplest things you can you can do as a coach and and as as and as players to stop it doesn't take a lot it doesn't take weeks and weeks of understanding cohesion to give that up it just sums up our current position and our, our current level of play right now and it's something that scares me immensely going into the PSG game because imagine, imagine Kylian Mbappe running at Sergio Ramos and Rafael Varane off a, off a corner kick and Neymar and Cavani are behind him. It, it, it just, that thought just terrifies me. Well, because I think Ramos will
1: be in the box already. He's not even defending that in, yeah. in that situation.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, good point. I mean, and... That just terrifies me because there's no way that th- those three don't convert that situation into a goal. So if we can't even fucking defend corner kicks or our our offensive corner kicks and be prepared for that, I I don't even have hope that we can counter press effectively. So like I said earlier, we should we should be we should be simpler. We should re- have one guy. It was usually Higuain or Benzema, with with Mourinho press really hard and in a way that it allows everyone else to retreat. And then we go from there. And then, yeah, the corner kick, free kick stuff. It's simple to solve. and It absolutely has to be if we want any chance of winning the Champions League time.
1: My only, like, from a psychological standpoint, if anything lights a fire in these guys for that game, is that they're all talking about it. Like, after every game, all we hear is, you know, we're still fighting for the Champions League, and we have big games still against PSG. I mean, from their perspective that game is the only thing left through the season.
2: It's yeah, and a- that could explain... Uh, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just no. want to quickly... I could, that could explain some of the performances in La Liga, right? Because it's pretty clear that 99%, if any of those players... I'm just going to say 99% because maybe one guy hasn't... Every, they've all given up on the league. And that that could explain the performances we're seeing, the lack of commitment. In, and maybe Zidane knows it too, and that's why he's not really... Applying effective tactics in these games because he knows his players aren't going to go out there and give a hundred and ten percent. So, but I mean, even stage, that is inexcusable. That if that, I, yeah, if it that is. I, I'm clear. not. Yeah, I'm not defending that at all. Yeah, I'm just. I'm just <clears throat> saying that's something the players because. Right, they're human beings, they experience those emotions and they wouldn't be human if they, if they experienced that. Obviously, we demand more, right? The professionals, they shouldn't be doing this. And it's dangerous because, sure, the league title is over, but now we're in a position where we're thinking, well, fighting to qualify for the Champions League is something we still have to do now. I, I, obviously, I'm not, I'm not going to go ahead and say we don't qualify, but just looking at it mathematically, we do have to play well. We do need to continue to win, if we want to qualify and so for the players to give up in the league when we're still in a position to fight for something is worrying and it's so hard to just turn on a switch when you've been playing this badly over and over again to then go against one of the best teams in europe and say well everything everything that has to go right will go right now and we're just going to turn that switch it doesn't work that way so I I, w- I thought this was the period right where we could build momentum up to the PSG match, and it looked like we were doing it. But I think this Levante game has just destroyed any thought of that, and it's really going to take something special from our guys, from Zidane, to to really to, to get back to that potential that we know they have, so that we can beat PSG and move on to the next round. I mean, this is only the round of sixteen, too, right? Where, yeah. We're bigging this tie-up so much, but we get past PSG. We could face Barcelona. We could face Bayern Munich. I mean, this is just the beginning. I mean, they're looking at it the same way because they they obviously just want the Champions
1: League. That, that yeah. that's t- It's on their radar like crazy, especially after last year's fiasco. And, um, you know, League One, I'm sure, means only so much to them with all due respect to that league. I'm sure the European crown is what they want from a real madrid perspective if you're this is what you've been building up and looking forward to all season you you just you, there's no margin of error you can't tank this you have to mm. you have to go out guns blazing and play the game of your life because otherwise uh this it doesn't nothing nothing would make sense like the build up to this game the way they're like talking about it after the press conferences saying you know we still have that big game and we're at real madrid blah blah, blah. Um, you better you better come out fighting like like uh, like we know you can. Um, first time in La Liga history that Levante don't lose in the season series against Real Madrid. So two two in both games. This two two thing is this weird weird thing this season. Two two against Levante. Two two against Numancia. Two two against Salta. Two uh, two against Fuenlabrada. 2-2 against Levante earlier this season, right? And then we had the 2-2 against Valencia too at home. It's weird. I don't know why why we're it's it's just a weird scoreline. Um that's been recurring constantly and and a lot of those games we were winning and they and they, they conceded. Um Let's take the next patron question, home. It's from Essa Hariri. He says, "Do you agree we do not have a good, we don't have good subs from Marcelo Carvajal and Casemiro at the moment? Zidane has no trust in any of yourente, Uh and they've yet to start them start in La Liga if the the former three aren't health are healthy. I feel those three starters are overworked and are not getting any rest. And he has a second question, but the first question." Um, you know, I'm not even sure if those three are necessarily the direct subs for those. Like Casemiro, I don't think his, his sub is Llorente. It's it's Kovacic. And, you know, Teo and and Atraf. Yeah, you could argue that, you know, Teo. I, Teo is a really good left back. I, you know, this idea that he's not good enough, I don't know. It's, it's still a bit weird to me. Um, having seen him start game in, game out in La Liga last season, and he was really good. I don't know if it's a matter of not being good enough. Like, all these teams, by the way, were getting scorched by Om. It's not like any of these guys have any players better than the players on our squad. That's just the reality. Yeah. It's not yeah, like we I bring that... in anyone else, and like, let's say we bring in uh, all of Levante's wing backs off the bench. Does not <laughs> make a difference? Like, we're, it's not that we have inferior players, is my point. Like, any, any team that Zidane has put out there has suffered this season.
2: Yeah. And. That, that's a fantastic point. I mean, all the points you made there was fantastic. I, well,
1: thank you. When I have never said anything so nice,
2: <laughs> I, I think it sums it up really well. I think because it, it gives perspective to the strength of our squad, right? Because what, what does it mean to have good players? When you think about it, having good players is always in relation to what the other team has. The question should always be, is our squad good enough to beat the other teams in the field. And so, for example, to beat Levante, players like Teo and, and Marcos Llorente are absolutely good enough. These guys would start on many, many La Liga teams. It's not like we bought players who were substitutes in lower-table lower, lower table La Liga teams with the hope that they would have some potential. These guys have fantastic potential. They were starters and not only were they starters, Yorente and, and Theo were, were stars for Alaves, and that's why we brought them in. They're absolutely good enough. You know, Zidane's lack of trust in, in Marcos Llorente is interesting. I, I'm not sure I understand it personally, but he Zidane does have this huge love for Casemiro. And personally, I think it's simply down to the fact that Zidane knows that his midfield structure and organization isn't always going to be great and that maybe he feels that he doesn't have the best grasp on how to to consistently have a really really strong defensive organization. And so therefore he leans heavily on Casemiro to clean things up and, and cover up structural deficiencies in the squad. And it didn't work versus Levante because it was just so, so bad. Casemiro would have had to be he would have essentially had to be luka modric to to um to have covered for all those deficiencies and and it's simply not fair to expect casemiro to do that every single game because it's a gargantuan gargantuan task i mean modric did it that one day but that's something casemiro does basically every single game especially this season because our defensive structure has never been great so it's I, th- I think personally that explains it because Llorente isn't as mob- mobile as Casemiro is, but I, how long can this go on, right? Because we need to give Llorente meaningful minutes because he if he, he can be the future of this position. He's a very talented defensive player. His defensive aspects are, are his biggest strengths, but it's different from Casemiro. It's his positioning, it's his intelligence. Uh, he's not necessarily the strongest player. He's not the fastest, but... He can get to where he needs to be if he has an adequate structure around him. And so I think because um, the question here surrounds players, I to me it's always more interesting and it's more prudent to discuss tactics and the way players fit into that. So I think these guys are good enough if our tactical system and our structure and all of those things – becomes adequate again. If we have even what we saw at the beginning of last season, which wasn't very great, and Zidane was still working through some issues, I still think that is better than what we had now, and I think these guys would shine more in that system. So, yeah, these guys are absolutely good enough, especially when compared to some of the weaker teams we play in La Liga. And it's more has to do with the system and the way certain players' qualities are highlighted in that system and the way players operate within... Um, whatever system that Zidane wants to play. I think the the Casemiro debate is something that
1: it's one of those recurring ones that happens a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think in this game, you know he he had some some nice step-ins and interventions and interceptions, and I think he had the most tackles on the team. I think his issue is that, like you know, what you just said, if Zidane is playing him because you know because he knows that the team needs to be you know cleaned up uh and kind of needs someone to sweep up the challenges and and cover cover for people. I think the problem with that thinking is that you're not you're not preventing the problem in the first place. You're you're yeah. you're yeah. expecting the problem, you're accepting it and then you're putting something uh as a reaction to that problem. And I think the problem with Casemiro is that he often can look better than he is mostly because his positioning is a way where he's doing a lot of last stitch tackling and getting back last second and it looks mm-hmm. spectacular whereas i think if if we we've seen in the past if you if you play a proper structured team where you kind of have more of a packed midfield and and better technical players and better positioning you can you cannot you can honestly just get away with with not having a pure destroyer in there and and that's what i think Kovacic brings to the table it's it's this idea of technical ability, stability, um someone who's better positionally and can also help you with your uh with your offense. Right? Like he's a ball carrier, he can he can link up with other players. He's a better passer and so many teams like over the years. This has been uh, this has been a two-year problem now by the way. Mm-hmm. Um we fr- we basically stopped talking about it last season at the end because we just blitzed everyone in the Champions League. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a two-year problem in the sense that so many opposing coaches know that we have two weaknesses and they've been open about this in the press conference. One, there's space in behind Marcelo, you attack it. Two, you hound Casemiro every time he gets the ball deep and force him into coughing up possession. And and that's reality. So, uh, again, I think positioning is important. I think you know, that's something that Marco Ciorante has, by the way, I think Marco Ciorante should just go on loan. And I don't, I don't think he should stick around. It doesn't make any sense to me anymore. Like just send him out on loan, um, in the summertime because he's clearly not going to get any significant minutes, uh, over Kovacic and Casemiro. And when he does, we expect him to just step in and, and be this world beating anchor. And he's not, mm-hmm. and that's because he's playing with a bunch of other fringe players. He has no rhythm. He's cold. And I'm not sure what we expect of him. And, just let him continue to play and develop, and you know that's my that's my Urente, man. I, I my blood boils when we talk about Yerente. There's a second part to this question from Essa. Unless you have something else you want to
2: add to this, um, I was just gonna say that uh, I I'm not sure Zidane's gonna be here next season. And I, my confidence going to the PSG game is is that we're gonna lose. Though I do think we'll put in a better performance than some people expect. Uh, and and for me, that's the end. If we lose against PSG, Zidane's gone at the end of the season. So it is possible that a new coach comes in and gives Llorente more minutes. So. I wouldn't. I wouldn't decide now whether we should ship Yorente out back on another loan because I think it is possible to give him the required minutes. It's just that Zidane hasn't done it this season because he doesn't trust him or whatever. So I would wait for the uh, for, for to see who our new coaches and what his philosophies are. But that's more semantics. And your overall point is is valid. If we see the
1: same kind of pressing. Against PSG, if we see the same kind of pressing we saw last season, particularly in the first leg against Napoli, first leg against Atleti, first leg against Bayern, I think we have a good shot. Then again, we just we don't know if we're going to see it.
2: Yeah, I mean, but it's like it's a big if, right? Like, yeah. I if if we play like we did last season, we obviously have a shot, but we haven't been playing like we have this season, so you know, I. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I agree. Like that's the thing, right? It's so hard to predict because it's not like what the level we're playing at right now is the level you'd expect of Real Madrid. There's, there's there's a huge range of of competency for this team right now. There there's a lot of there's a lot of room to improve. So, you know, maybe maybe we can attain that level, but it's just so difficult to imagine at the moment. Um, the second part to ask us
1: question is uh, about Fede. So he says, what are your updates about Feddy Valverde? I watched this clip on him on YouTube and the guy looks great. Uh, yeah, I'm sure the YouTube clip was probably of his compilation of, of things he's done last season and over the summer and in preseasons because he just doesn't play with Depor. And you thought maybe when Pepe Mel got sacked, it would get better. Um, and Cristobal didn't play him. Now Cristobal sacked, by the way. And Clarence Sedorf is the guy apparently taking over, which is interesting. But yep. um, Valverde is not really paying, playing, so I don't, we don't. Really, that's the update essentially this season. He just doesn't play, and any time he plays, he's not really in sync with the team. He's not playing in his proper position. He, they kind of put him to the left a bit. And uh, the other guy, like him and Fabas, were kind of running the show at Castilla last season. Fabas is playing regularly, but he plays in Segunda or Zaragoza. I watched him play maybe five times this season, and um, He's a good, he hasn't, he has, he doesn't dominate the ball like he did with Castilla, but there's your update, Essa. they need to play more, um, and Fede, it's kind of shitty for him, you know, obviously it's shitty for him, but he may have gotten the World Cup call up, because he was, he got called up and he scored for Uruguay uh, in the senior team, and then he just stopped playing for Depor, so I don't, I don't know if he's going to make it, it sucks for him. Um, Sayantan Nandi says, Why the hell does Zidane keep on subbing bail around the 65th minute every match? And why didn't we buy a center back in January? Um, Knowing two of our center backs are injury prone, Ramos coming back from injury. Zizou has gotten all the leeway he can as a manager, hasn't he? So the center back question, Om and I actually addressed, what was it? Last week or two podcasts ago, I think. We talked Mm -hmm. about Diego Llorente. We talked about um, the risk of going into the season with your four center backs being who they are. So... Um with respect to our other listeners, we're not gonna repeat the, the answer and and keep talking about the same thing, but do we have anything further to say, Om, about Bale getting subbed off every game?
2: I I I don't know what to say other than I don't really understand it. I mean, I guess he wasn't amazing um in against Levante, but who who did who came on for him again against Levante? It must
1: have been Lucas, wasn't it? Hold on, I'll pull it up in a second. But um, yeah. But continue.
2: Yeah. So it's it's something I don't really understand. Um, I guess it's just it's just Zizy trying things at at this point. And it was for and, Isco. Oh yeah, we moved to a diamond. Yeah. When we needed to defend counters, which was a very interesting change. Mm. Um. It's just, I feel like Zidane, with this squad, His I, I wrote an article at the very beginning of the season about this, how his number one priority above tactics, above everything, is to ensure that he's giving minutes to everyone, or at least the players that he likes and feels like deserves minutes, and so... It became very clear last season that he he just can't leave Isco out to out to dry, and that Isco was kind of vocal about about saying that he would he would he would move on if if he he didn't see a future at Madrid. And obviously, Isco is is a fantastic player. He came on, he scored. Even though I felt the sub was wrong via for, because of the formation change, though I did think Isco could make an impact, and he did. Um, so he, he wants to give a player like Isco minutes because he's very high quality. He could start um, on most teams in world football. There's very few teams I would say no to Isco. And obviously Asensio keeps coming on because he's Asensio. He has a very bright future ahead of him and we don't want him to stagnate. And with Bale's injury issues and the fact that uh, Ronaldo is not even though he did get subbed off when we were ahead he's really going to be subbed off in situations where we need to win um it makes Bale and Benzema the two players that are always going to be subbed um and it's it's disappointing because for me most of the times the problems are in midfield or they have to do with tactics so I don't see how just swapping out nuts and bolts will solve anything and I think Zidane got away with it kind of because isco came on and scored so it made his substitution look good when in reality his change of, of formation from a 4-3-3 to 4-4-2 diamond made us weaker as a whole when it came to defending counters so yeah i mean i i started by saying i don't understand it i mean i kind of do but i don't in the sense that i i don't really agree with it and i think there are better ways to to manage in-game situations
1: yeah i mean uh I said it at the on my halftime video on Facebook that I really hope we just were able to take advantage of Bale and Benzema before they get subbed off. Turns out Benzema didn't get subbed off. He played the 90 minutes and had an assist to Isco. Um, but with Bale, I, I found like him and Benzema both were were playing well in the first half. And, and we just didn't take advantage of it because Ronaldo just couldn't finish his chances and he couldn't control the passes he was getting. And... I think if you're gonna if you're gonna make it a habit, and we kind of all know Baylor's gonna come off in the second half because you know just Pat, the reasons you mentioned, his track record of getting getting injured, um, and Isco obviously needing playing time, and you got to take somebody off, and in most cases it's not gonna be Modric or Ronaldo. Um, I just hope you get to take advantage of his of his creativity before you step him off and and this has been the problem like if we're finishing our chances generally it's not a huge issue but I also thought you know for what it's worth it wasn't Bale's best game like I don't think he was great in yeah. this game you know he didn't he didn't do a whole lot he was kind of invisible mm-hmm. for stretches um, he had a, a couple of really nice passes and, and created some chances for Ronaldo early on but overall he wasn't like nearly as important as he was in previous games and and uh, certainly wasn't, like, on Modric level in, in, in terms of importance. And I was, I will say he's still, like, one of the things that I noted in my reaction was that Oyer, Levante's goalkeeper, was really shaky all game, and we just didn't test him. And there was a couple of moments where Bale had a chance to just launch it from 30 yards, and he just didn't. Um, and I just want him to shoot as much as possible if you have Bale and you have a shaky keeper like that. So... um. <clears throat> Sheik Hatiri says, I'm getting annoyed with Zidane. What should Asensio do to gain his trust to be an occasional starter? Also, Kovacic would have been a much better replacement than Vasquez and Ceballos was not even on the bench. Was he injured? I think, yeah, I think Ceballos was just recovering. But, uh, you know, it's not like if he was healthy, I I don't think he makes the bad G, that's the thing. Um, Zidane keeps doing the same thing, using the same players and getting nothing in return. One might say that's the definition of insanity. So if Zidane leaves at the end of the season, do you think Heinkes... Henkes? I can't say it. How do you say his name? You're Uh I w I Am w- and I were actually discussing this before the podcast. I asked him to tell me how it's pronounced because I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say his name out loud. I've only read it. Um, and he told me what it was off air and I still couldn't do it. Um, so is it possible <laughs> he returns? Um with all these things said, I have I still have a little faith in Zidane. After all, he has Zidane, and I'd still give him one more season if he provides a plan to make serious readjustments. So, um, I don't think Heinkes ever comes back. I think the guy just wants yeah. to retire. The only reason he's coaching right now is because the team he loves really need needed him to step in. That's it.
2: Yeah, that that was kind of out of the blue. Um, yeah. yeah, I I really I don't. I haven't seen anything that would make me think he'd come back. Like you said, he came back because Bayern essentially begged him to come back as interim coach. I highly doubt that he'd even coach Bayern um, this season after this one. So, yeah, I don't really see that happening at all. No. Um, I think
1: we've talked about the subs enough. I don't know. Do you have anything to add? Asensio, uh, to, for what it's worth, I think Asensio... I mean, I guess he technically could, him and sebastian could be playing more, but he's getting good minutes this season. It's not like...
2: Yeah, Sensio's minutes have been all right. I mean, we all knew it was going to fall off once Ronaldo and Ronaldo's suspension was over and Benzema gained his fitness and Bale came back. I, It's it's something that just players down lower down the pecking order have had to live with and then... It, it's a thing with Real Madrid that they eventually get their chance to shine with injury or something. It was Isco's case under Ancelotti, Isco's case under Zidane. Um, I, I'm I'm fairly okay with how the Asensio thing is going. I, I don't blame Zidane for trying to get BBC in rhythm before the PSG game because that is obviously the trio he is going to play. Um, but I, looking forward in the league season, I don't think it would hurt to give Asensio more, more starts because... Um, yeah, the league the league race is over, and I don't think it's a huge downgrade to put Asensio in and and ask us to win games because I think he's capable of doing that. I mean, isn't this essentially
1: the argument that that we can make that ha- losing Hamas is not as detrimental as we thought because mm-hmm. we we know Hamas is great. No one is arguing that, but. If we're complaining about Asensio's playing time, but if Hamas was still here, exactly, he wouldn't even see the light of day. So what's the (laughs) point?
2: Yeah, like that. I mean, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this, right? But I never understood the argument that we miss Hamas big time. Like theoretically, we could, right? Because he's fantastic. Like I fall in love with Hamas more every day. it, to start off with, he was never one of my favorite players. I mean, I'm still a huge Isco fan, but I've never hated Hamas and his, his quality just grows on you because he's that, he's that good. But you people, people always want to look at factors in isolation. You you cannot analyze things without ever. Um, You have to use context, right? Whenever you're analyzing things and Hamas in the context of Real Madrid's rotation system is a non-factor because he doesn't get to play. So, no, we we don't miss Hamas because Zidane wouldn't play him. Theoretically we could, but Hamas not being here is not the reason we're in the position that we are in. I mean you can you can argue you can make a better argument about Marata, but that's a totally different story. He wanted to leave at the end of the day and blah blah blah. But the Hamas thing is a non-issue for me. Um here's a potentially surprising stat.
1: Uh Asensio's minutes in La Liga about nine hundred and thirty, which is mm-hmm. over three hundred more minutes than Lucas Vasquez.
2: That's reasonable. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that surprised me. I mean, it might surprise other people, but it doesn't surprise me because I, I've, I've talked about this stat before. How Sensio has virtually been subbed on every single game he's been on the bench, yeah. and he got, he got lots of starting time when, when um, basically all of BBC was out for various reasons. So, and Lucas has really only seen time off the bench and his only starts have really come in the Copa. So I mean, that's that's fairly decent time. It's not it's not spectacular. He'll probably come around to like 1500 1600 minutes by the end of the season. But I think given the given like how deep the squad is, especially in attacking areas, we knew that's how it was going to be and it's only going to go up moving forward, especially if we sell one of the BBC this summer. Question from Leon Stavronakis.
1: He says if Benz were unavailable for a big game, who would you play alongside Ronaldo and Bale in a 4-3-3? The choices are Borja or either Isco or Asensio as a false nine. Uh, I know Zidane would probably revert to the diamond, but a guy can dream, can't he? I mean, we can. I think this is something we can quickly answer. Do you want to go first?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I've talked about this plenty of times before on Twitter, on previous pods. I'm just not a fan of Isco or Asensio as a false nine because you have to, it's a false nine is a striker is one of your primary goal scorers who also has the capability to drop in midfield and link up play and there's very few players in world football who can do that and still provide an effective presence up front and we've tried false nine systems before i we used Hamas there i'm pretty sure we've used isco there and it, it hasn't looked great because they simply don't know what they're doing up there as a striker right they always want to move deeper than they should And there's a loss of presence up front because being a false nine is essentially balancing the duties of uh, a striker, an attacking midfielder, and also at times sort of like a controller in midfield. And it's just not something I think Isco and Asensio would handle to to the greatest capacity. I don't think it's the best use of their qualities. Um, I mean, there's a reason literally... Benzema, Messi, and then Francesco Totti are like the only three false nines that one can really think of over the past decade. And if you look at their skill set, it's it doesn't really match up to Asensio's or Isco's. I mean, part of Isco's and Asensio's skill set matches up to those players, but definitely not the, the part about being a striker. So, I mean, I would be more comfortable playing Mario Rale as a striker In all honesty, in a big game over Isco and Asensio, it's a false nine. But what I'd probably do is go, um, I'd put Ronaldo in the number nine position and put Asensio out wide and Bail out wide and and go from there. Um, Then I'd say Mayra would be my next option. And then I'd say the false nine thing.
1: Well, um, I might counter that, actually. I might counter it. I think... I think Isco, in a sense, you can, can pull it off. I think Asensio could probably pull it off a bit better. But um, I only say that because we have a very tiny sample size where it actually looked amazing, and that was with, with Spain uh, against Italy, where they just went crazy in Isco. And uh, I think it was Isco technically, like if you would define them as the false nine. But um, that was the game where they left Morata on the bench, and Morata came on eventually later on in the game. And... Um, I think it it worked really well. Yeah. Now, the flip side is that you to to kind of just implement it on the fly in, in the season, especially in a big game, it can be risky. And also, you can't it's kind of it's kind of hard to play a false nine if Ronaldo is in the team already. If you know what I mean, because he's going to be naturally he's going to play higher up the pitch and he's going to try to spearhead that attack. So, you kind of it doesn't really work that way with, with him and the team. If he's not in the team, it might work. Um But I'm I'm kind of in the boat om that I if, if Benzema's out, I'm I'm not I'm not huge on Borja this season. I think I would rather put Asensio in there and push Ronaldo a little bit higher and and, and gain some control in the midfield. I my guess I guess I'm saying I wouldn't even go with a four three three in that in that situation at all. Yeah, I mean
2: yeah, I mean, I'd probably go with the four-two-three-one or or four-four-two. Yeah, four-two-three-one um, is a really underrated
1: formation. I think it it covers a lot of bases, especially with a team like with with the weapons that we have and the amount of central midfielders we have and attacking midfielders we have and the lack of strikers we have. By the way, I think I think it makes sense for us. I don't know why we don't see it.
2: And uh, because of Casemiro, right? Because Zidane always wants to play Casemiro, yeah. and then he has to play Modric and Kroos, so.
1: Um, i will be. I don't. When was the last time? correct me if I'm wrong. Have we, have we seen a situation where it's like Kroos and Modric and double pivot ever? We've seen Modric and Kovacic. We've seen Kroos and Kovacic and double pivot. I don't know if we've seen Modric and Kroos together. If we have, I I can't recall. Hmm. I think in you look at Modric and Kroos and double pivot, and you're like, wow, that's really a, it's a really bad idea. But I think if you surround them with a bunch of two-way players like we you know like with bail on, on one flank and then you have east down the middle but like in a, in a more defined role not necessarily a diamond and then a Sensio on the right i think it would be really interesting you would, you would you would you would basically control the whole game and if you have any defensive frailties you'd you'd essentially mask it by by just keeping the ball the entire game and and pinning opponents so Again, these are things, like, kind of weird things to discuss now because we, we just know Zidane won't, won't implement things, these things on the fly, you know. Um, Anton Hackberg, just a quick comment. He says, uh, just a small shout-out to the Manager Madrid listeners. I and Frederick Sundros, who is also a patron, are going to Madrid for the game against PSG. So if any of you guys are in town, just throw a message. Any of you brave enough to go to this match? <laughs>
2: Yeah, you would Messi. have to be brave. You would have to be brave. I think because I'm, I'm, it would not be a it would not be a great feeling to come out of that match having lost. I'm
1: probably going to be at that game, by the way. <laughs> I'm actually a bit a bit terrified. <laughs> good luck. Good yeah. luck. And I'll I'll be at Sociedad the game. The, the Sociedad one before that is kind of a banana peel, isn't it?
2: I feel like every single league match is a banana yeah, peel. Yeah, every
1: single oh. game is a banana peel. Um, Sociedad just beat. Uh, Deport five nil, and yeah, we're probably gonna rest players against them, aren't we? Like
2: Sociedad has struggled this season, but they've always played well against us. I feel. Yeah. Or they just they they managed to turn up. Like they they have they have a, they have a proud history. They're a proud club, so they they turn up in the big games usually. Um. Question from Alec.
1: And I think this will be the last question we take uh, And we don't have time to take any others But Alex says I'm a long time patron The first time question asker here With a question for the next time you're all recording a podcast So Alex says It's looking more and more certain that Zidane will be on his way out At the end of the season As someone who over the course of the last two seasons fell in love with the exuberant, pants-ripping, back-to-back Champions League winning, B-squad rotating, man-managing, shiny head-having man known as Zidane. This fills my heart with sadness. So I would love for those on the podcast with a bit more knowledge of Madrid's history to talk about managers in Madrid's past who have been hired, fired, and then rehired. I know there are a few managers who have served multiple times, uh, or sorry, multiple terms, Di Stefano and Del Bosque stand on my mind. Are there any historical parallels between Zidane and any of Madrid's multiple-term managers of the past? Do you think there would be any value in letting Zidane go this year so he can develop as a coach only to bring him in a few years down the line once he has gotten some experience? Thanks for the insight. This is a fun question, Alex. Thank you for asking it. Um, I guess you can kind of break this down into a couple separate discussions. Uh, Maybe a natural question to ask all. Like, let's say if Zidane is not here next 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 year, this idea of sending him out to develop as a coach—not that you would say that intentionally—and say, "Okay, you go go (laughs) out on loan and (laughs) get sent here." Where would even be a place for him? Where would he? I don't understand. I don't know. Like, if if many teams would, I'm sure he would get a job. I don't know what level it would be though. Is it a big team? Is it a smaller team in France? do you, do you have anything standing out to you here can you can you think of anyone a good fit uh
2: not off the top of my head i mean i think a smaller squad after this bigger one would be better for him anyway so it's like less managing egos and stuff because we want it so if there's this idea right where we let go of Zidane but keep the window or the door open for him to come back which you know is 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 never going to be a bad idea right we should always be open to bringing back managers if they're good enough um then he should look to expand his skill set so he should probably go to go to a place like a a lower table league one side or something some something to that effect that will have him grow in different areas because honestly his strengths are still the whole managing egos things his motivational ability i still think is one of his strengths even though it's 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 one of the harder things to judge it's that type of intangible stuff that he's good at it's it's the questions over his tactics that have always remained it's if he if he goes to a squad that doesn't have that much star power to to do to perform well he he would have to really sharpen up his tactics on a consistent basis he he couldn't just you know, put together a good plan in big games, it would have to be consistent, he would have to develop a, a proper philosophy so that his players could be able to, to, to perform consistently, and those are the kinds of things that he would have to develop in, and I, I don't think that would that we would see that if he went, for example, for some reason he went to Bayern Munich, because like we said, we don't think Heinkes is, is going to be there after this season he would it would be back to more like results oriented type football and managing the egos and not having as much time as as you would in other jobs to focus on tactical issues and focus on more fundamental things so yeah i think i i agree that he probably won't get a job at a bigger club after leaving real madrid and that it's probably best for him if he didn't because new experiences are always a good thing especially If they're going to teach him new skills and if he's to come back, then we want him to improve on the things that are currently weaknesses or or things that he's not the strongest at at the moment. Could be
1: interesting to see him somewhere like a Leon, you know?
2: Yeah, I would definitely follow his career if he moved and to see how he developed because I I honestly, I, I talk a lot about Zidane and some people feel like I have a good grasp on Zidane's tactics, but sometimes, man, I just feel like I have no fucking idea how good he is, what he does. Like I just sometimes I feel lost, right? Because it's such a hard thing to to analyze a manager's ability in the context of Real Madrid and with the quality of the players. Is it Zidane who's who's influencing the win or is it the players? It's so difficult. There's so many goddamn factors here. I would be interested to see how he performed elsewhere, and just out of sheer curiosity, to to finally understand the, the enigma that is Zidane. I would I would follow his career and see how he develops to really figure out, you know, who he is. What are what are his true strengths? What are his true weaknesses? And and what what is it that he needs to do to move forward to become, you know, one of the legendary coaches in this game? I mean, it truly
1: is an enigma. Like it's if yeah. you were ever to call anything an enigma, it's Zidane. Because you just don't understand. You don't know how to read him. Because he went from having one of the greatest seasons in the club history, and immediately followed with one of the worst in the club history. And then he's. We've seen like over the past couple years, like anomalies, tactical anomalies, that have worked so well and have been such a deviation from what he normally does. And it. And then we just don't see it again. And we're like. Okay, well, that was great. What, what happened to that? <laughs> what, what happened to that great uh, counter-attacking scheme against Atleti last season? What happened to that narrow narrow line uh, against Barca in the first Clasico he took over? Like, it's, it's kind of weird. And then, yeah, I, I just don't know how to read him. Um, here's a list Om, of managers who have been, had more than one stint with Real Madrid and they've been rehired after being fired or, or whatever the situation. Camacho who was a nightmare. He both times he come he came he just quit after like 2 weeks. He's like I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. Capello <laughs> successful in my opinion in both his years where he was fired. He won mm-hmm. the league in both. Um Del Bosque actually had 3 stints. But I don't know if you really count the first two because they were essentially him taking over after a manager has been fired. So he just takes over for like half a season. Uh, he's, like, an interim mm-hmm. manager. He was, like, basically the Voro of, Valence, the, the, of Real Madrid for two stints uh, before he took on full-time. John Toshak, Leo Beanhacker, Bean Di Stefano had two different stints. Um, by the way, if there's a case to be made for, you know, like, people are saying... I don't want Zidane's legacy to be tarnished or whatever as a player. It'll never be tarnished. Di Stefano's because of D Stefano. Stefano's managerial stint at Real Madrid was terrible. Both of them. It was not. It was not good. Yeah. It was not good. Yeah. And no one cares. No one remembers that. Everyone just remembers him as the, one of the greatest players of all
2: time. Well, I mean, there also wasn't social media back then, but I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure Zidane is beloved enough that his playing career cannot be ruined. I mean. It, he he was a fantastic player, one of the greatest of all time, and it you would, I I'd hope people had the logic to be able to separate the two. I mean, it didn't ruin. I don't think Maradona's legacy was impacted after his absolutely disastrous. I actually world.
1: completely forgot he was a manager. That's how much he, I don't. It care. was
2: so yeah. it was so bad. We all forgot. Yeah, I mean, it was bad. I, I think what makes Zidane more memorable is that he he managed Madrid and he was successful he, he he did a lot of good things but yeah we we we'll, we'll, we'll know 10 years down the line anyway but i really hope that his playing career isn't tarnished because he was he was fabulous
1: do you think if if we had like twitter back in the di stefano era like
2: oh he he would have been roasted people <laughs> i i mean i'm sure there's there's some people who think that this somehow ruins his legacy overall but if there's one good thing I feel the Real Madrid fan base has done or, or one good opinion most of us hold, I feel like we're mm-hmm. able to separate Zidane's managerial career and playing career. But yeah, it would be interesting to go back and see what people would have said then. They would have been like, oh, just because Di Stefano is a good player, you think he could be a good manager. And we'd basically be having very similar conversations to what we did um, or what we had when, when Zidane took over and. I probably would have written an article saying it's a mistake for Di mm-hmm. Stefano to take over, and I might have been right then. Um, but as we know, I was wrong when I wrote that article about Zidane a couple years ago. But <laughs> I mean, I think if we had like
1: Twitter during the Pushkas era, like he would be one of the most like por- polarizing characters. I think. Yeah, we, we would have been, He's he's too old.
2: Why did we sign him? He's thirty one. Uh, if- People make fun of Benzema for being fat or for some weird reason. Imagine when imagine imagine when we first signed Pushkas. that people would have been irate. Um yeah. yeah. Um, I in a way I'm glad we didn't have Twitter back then. Um it 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 makes the legends of of the players of old more endearing and it feels like their legacy is cleaner in a way. Because whenever I think for example about Ronaldo's legacy which should be untouchable if, if you're a reasonable fan. So I'm not talking about Barcelona fans right here. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that digging. But um, you think his legacy is untouchable, right? But when you think about it and you talk about it with other people, people are always trying to bring him down. You get the impression that he's this lucky player who had no talent at all and he could just tap the ball in the box like...
0: Yeah. It,
2: I, I it's not hard to imagine you know narratives like that surrounding Pushkas, right? Like so I'm 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 happy in that way that social media didn't expect then Um I think generally also
1: these things um we we don't appreciate players in general like maybe like 5 10 years after they retire. Just yeah. in general, you know. I I think that's a general rule cuz we all have because every player declines, right? And then we all have a recency bias when that player during their decline. And then like years later, we're like, oh, yeah, their, their career was actually incredible.
2: In and Raul, Raul is a great example.
1: Yeah. Raul, Raul had an early decline and it was st- yeah. steep. Like 2003, he just fell off a cliff and it was inexplicable. Um, although I still think it was because he started to grow his hair out.
2: His hair, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I, I Kobe's mean, a
1: good example. Kobe? I Yeah, but Kobe yeah, it's a basketball. Went, Kobe went out with it's a, a bang though. Yeah. I mean,
2: game. but a lot of a lot of people hated him like they absolutely hated him when he was playing and a lot of those same people afterwards came to like essentially pay their respects. Like yeah. there there is like an effect like you're saying right, like after legends retire, we we tend to appreciate it more. I mean, the, obviously there's people who still hate Kobe, but I feel like it's a lot less now. I feel like there's just more respect. Um,
1: you and I were talking about this on Slack. If if Twitter was around when Michael Jordan was playing, they would people would hate him.
2: People would hate him. Well, he was an asshole, but yeah, people would absolutely
1: hate him. He was one. Of, he was he was a complete psychopath. <laughs> one. Of, he was to me. He's the greatest athlete ever. Like I, I've never seen anyone as great as him dominate. But he was. He was also a psychopath. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's what made him so great, right? Like it's yeah, like yeah. that obsession with, with your craft i um, taking it so seriously. Um, yeah, but he was a dick. Um, but he was a, <laughs> he was a great dick.
2: <laughs> um, oh, that's what she said. Uh,
1: yeah. My list, the end of my list, there was three other managers. Miguel Munoz, Luis Maluni, and Jacinto Quincoses. So, yeah, I mean, it's not inconceivable that Zidane would go and come back. It's really not. But it to you know I guess we will also say it's never happened under under Florentino. Florentino's yeah, think, never brought back a manager like he, you know. Yeah, it'd be. Do you think it's, like, do you think that Ancelotti is, is that is that, is that uh, bridge burned? I guess like is is that out
2: of the question. So people keep saying that Ancelotti might not want to come back but I've seen interviews where oh, yeah. he said that he no. would be happy to come back. It's not it's not Carlo an issue on Ancelotti. Carlo Sorry. has
1: zero grudge. He's too too classy for that. Yeah.
2: yeah. But for, uh, I it's an issue with Florentino, right? Because if there's one of his one of his character flaws I think is that he has a lot of pride and he does hold grudges. So for example, Fernando Redondo, I, I'm campaigned like with the with the opponent of Florentino. Ordin didn't campaign, but advocated on behalf of the opponent of Florentino Perez in the first presidential campaign that Perez ran in. And when Perez won and became president, he shipped Redondo out just immediately, even though he was a fantastic player. And there was no footballing or, or a really marketing reason to do so. It happened because he he, he was an opponent of Florentino. So Florentino would have to... Let go of some pride there, because it, by bringing Ancelotti back in a way, you could interpret it as him admitting that he made a mistake by sacking him, and I don't know if that's something Florentino would ever do. um I, I hope. I mean, Florentino has evolved as a person over time. um I think he's a much better president on the footballing side of things than he was in the past. So maybe maybe he's changed in that aspect, but I think. Look, thinking about Florentino's pride and how he would handle handle that sort of thing, I think is an interesting question and an interesting topic of discussion.
1: Um, the the Redondo thing—it's like one of the the way that it worked out for us somehow was one of the luckiest things that ever yeah, happened. Yeah, because Makaleli
0: came.
1: In, yeah, because yeah, not only Makaleli came, and I I remember that summer there were there were actually riots in madrid for for selling redondo because <laughs> i mean he's not only a legend he was still at a very high level not only we brought in maclealy which no one really knew that's what he was going to turn into but redondo got injured like almost immediately when he went to milan uh, and like basically never played again he played like a little bit when he came back but that just somehow worked out for Florentino. um I think this is a good, good, good time to stop the podcast. I think uh, we we hit all the talking points. Next week we have Sociedad, no midweek game, uh, and then after that we have PSG. We're only ten days away from PSG. Can you believe it? It's really creeping up on us. It's the, the, the 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 day from hell is almost here. Dude, I'm pissing my
2: pants right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i just want it to be over man i just want to know and it won't even it, the first leg won't even decide things well i hope i i really hope that it doesn't we have the second legs will decide things but i don't know man i'm just so nervous i i'm gonna be covering my face half the time and especially if there's like a penalty or something oh my god i'm gonna leave the room i actually think it's a blessing that the first game is at home
1: i feel like if if we're in a situation where oh, the, yeah. the tie is still alive in the second leg and it was at home, I think the pressure would hit us. Yeah, we've seen that before. Yeah. And it, yeah, the Dortmund game, the Bayern game. Yeah. This is way... I, I was always on the fence whether it's an actual advantage to play the second leg at home or not. Because everyone says, oh, you have the advantage here, uh, to have the second leg at home. You're the higher seed. I was always on the fence. I've never seen stats to back up this opinion I have of mine. So it may, may or may not be true. But I always. I always felt like it's more devastating to score an away goal in the second leg, psychologically. If that makes and, sense. And,
2: and because, like... I'm isolating it to one factor here, but I think it's a pretty big one. I, Ronaldo has, like, this mentality. He, at this point, he enjoys, like, people booing him. He enjoys being the villain in an opposing stadium. I think that just gives us an edge when it comes to playing away. A because... For, not that Ronaldo won't perform in the Bernabéu obviously he does but when it comes to huge away games Ronaldo just raises his level to something that I I've, I've never seen it's incredible so I think that gives us an advantage there as well because Ronaldo just feels like he he's a guy that has a lot of internal motivation but that external motivation takes him to the next level and that external motivation is just is just so much greater when we play away especially if it's in a deciding game I mean you look at the um The tie against sweden in the world cup i he scored a goal people forget that he played really well in the first leg against against sweden in portugal Mm -hmm. he scored a goal and it was 1-0 there but then he went and he just destroyed sweden away and that's that's the kind of thing i'm talking about and it's right like i obviously i could be wrong here i mean we need statistics to back it up but that's the kind of sentiment i have about this sort of thing if any anyone listening
1: is is not lazy like us and wants to dig up the stat <laughs> of the second like historically, if, does the home team usually win the second leg? Do they advance or not? I'd be curious to see that because right now I'm just based maybe and maybe it's unique to Real Madrid. I don't know. Maybe like a smaller team would play better at home in the second leg. I just feel like the pressure popping atmosphere. Now, having said that, we against Bayern last season we were. You know but then again the, the flip side of that is that it was a very uncomfortable victory,
2: <laughs> it and was we had very a lead. and we had a lead as well yeah, we had a lead, yeah
1: yeah, okay, oh Marvin um we'll catch you next week thank you uh i'm I'm glad you you have your mic, you sound way better um and so that that's a big plus, so patron money going to good use. And a quick shout-out to Andrew Caleb Gomez, who is providing us with the music you hear in the intro and the, and, and the outro. And before we wrap it up, oh, I'm going to do a quick patron shout-out. So shout-out to all of our amazing patrons. There are so many of you now. Um, shout-out to these specific patrons who pledge $10 or more, and the reward for pledging that amount is you get a specific shout-out on the podcast. So shout-out to Nick DiStefani, Frederick Sundros, Leon Stavronakis, Bjorn Salvador, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Sergio Monleon, Red Bat, Anthony Vasquez, Yahya Ibrahim, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Sheikh Hatiri, Ian Marley, Andrew Gomez, Anton Hackberg, Jimmy Obey, Daniel Smith, Solomon Ortiz, and Jeanette. Thank you to each and every one of you. You're amazing. Oh, uh, Marvin, thank you for joining me. And Hala All Hala Madrid.